Section 10 of Great Epics in American History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Lyon, Winchester, Kansas. Great Epics in American History, Volume 3, The French War and the Revolution, 1745 to 1782, by Francis Whiting Halsey. Section 10. Daniel Boone's Migration to Kentucky, 1. 1769 to 1775, by Theodore Roosevelt. The American backwoodsmen had surged up, wave upon wave, till their mass trembled in the troughs of the Alleghenies, ready to flood the continent beyond. The people threatened by them were dimly conscious of the danger which as yet only loomed in the distance. Far off, among their quiet adobe villages, in the sun-scorched lands by the Rio Grande, the slow Indo-Iberian peons and their monkish masters still walked in the tranquil steps of their fathers, ignorant of the growth of the power that was to overwhelm their children and successors. But nearer by, Spaniard and Creole Frenchmen, Algonquin and Appalachian, were all uneasy as they began to feel the first faint pressure of the American advance. As yet, they had been shielded by the forest which lay over the land like an unrent mantle. All through the mountains and far beyond, it stretched without a break. But toward the mouth of the Kentucky and Cumberland rivers, the landscape became varied with open groves of woodland, with flower-strewn glades and great barrens or prairies of long grass. This region, one of the fairest in the world, was the debatable ground between the northern and southern Indians. Neither dared dwell therein, but both used it as their hunting grounds, and it was traversed from end to end by the well-marked war traces which they followed when they invaded each other's territory. The whites, on trying to break through the barrier which hemmed them in from the western lands, naturally succeeded best when pressing along the line of least resistance. And so their first great advance was made in this debatable land, where the uncertainly divined hunting grounds of the Cherokee, Creek, and Chickasaw marched upon those of northern Algonquin and Wyandotte. Unknown and unnamed hunters and Indian traders had from time to time pushed some little way into the wilderness, and they had been followed by others of whom we do indeed know the names but little more. One explorer had found and named the Cumberland River and Mountains, and the great pass called Cumberland Gap. Others had gone far beyond the utmost limits this man had reached, and had hunted in the great bend of the Cumberland and in the woodland region of Kentucky, famed among the Indians for the abundance of the game. But their accounts excited no more than a passing interest. They came and went without comment, as lonely stragglers had come and gone for nearly a century. The backwoods civilization crept slowly westward, without being influenced in its movements by their explorations. Finally, however, 
among these hunters one arose whose wanderings were to bear fruit, who was destined to lead through the wilderness the first body of settlers that ever established a community in the far west, completely cut off from the seaboard colonies. This was Daniel Boone. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1734, but when only a boy had been brought with the rest of his family to the banks of the Yadkin in North Carolina. Here he grew up, and as soon as he came of age he married, built a log hut, and made a clearing, whereon to farm like the rest of his backwoods neighbors. They all tilled their own clearings, guiding the plow among the charred stumps left when the trees were chopped down and the land burned over, and they were all, as a matter of course, hunters. With Boone, hunting and exploration were passions, and the lonely life of the wilderness, with its bold, wild freedom, the only existence for which he really cared. He was a tall, spare, sinewy man, with eyes like an eagle's, and muscles that never tired. The toil and hardship of his life made no impress on his iron frame, unhurt by intemperance of any kind, and he lived for eighty-six years, a backwoods hunter to the end of his days. His thoughtful, quiet, pleasant face, so often portrayed, is familiar to everyone. It was the face of a man who never blustered or bullied, who would neither inflict nor suffer any wrong, and who had a limitless fund of fortitude, endurance, and indomitable resolution upon which to draw when fortune proved adverse. His self-command and patience, his daring, restless love of adventure, and in time of danger his absolute trust in his own powers and resources, all combined to render him peculiarly fitted to follow the career of which he was so fond. Boone hunted on the western waters at an early date. In the valley of Boone's Creek, a tributary of the Watauga, there is a beech tree still standing, on which can be faintly traced an inscription setting forth that D. Boone killed a bar on this tree in the year 1760. On the expeditions of which this is the earliest record, he was partly hunting on his own account and partly exploring on behalf of another, Richard Henderson. Henderson was a prominent citizen of North Carolina, a speculative man of great ambition and energy. He stood high in the colony, was extravagant and fond of display, and his fortune being jeopardized, he hoped to more than retrieve it by going into speculations in western lands on an unheard-of scale. For he intended to try to establish on his own account a great proprietary colony beyond the mountains. He had great confidence in Boone, and it was his backing which enabled the latter to turn his discoveries to such good account. Boone's claim to distinction rests not so much on his wide wanderings in unknown lands, for in this respect he did little more than was done by a hundred other backwoods hunters of his generation. But on the fact that he was able to turn his daring woodcraft to the advantage of his fellows. As he himself said, he was an instrument ordained of God 
to settle the wilderness. He inspired confidence in all who met him, so that the men of means and influence were willing to trust adventurous enterprises to his care. And his success as an explorer, his skill as a hunter, and his prowess as an Indian fighter enabled him to bring these enterprises to a successful conclusion, and in some degree to control the wild spirits associated with him. Boone's expeditions into the edges of the wilderness whetted his appetite for the unknown. He had heard of great hunting grounds in the far interior from a stray hunter and Indian trader who had himself seen them, and on May 1, 1769, he left his home on the Yadkin to wander through the wilderness of America in quest of the country of Kentucky. He was accompanied by five other men, including the informant, and struck out toward the northwest through the tangled mess of rugged mountains and gloomy forests. During five weeks of severe toil, the little band journeyed through vast solitudes whose utter loneliness can with difficulty be understood by those who have not themselves dwelt and hunted in primeval mountain forests. Then, in early June, the adventurers broke through the interminable wastes of dim woodland and stood on the threshold of the beautiful bluegrass region of Kentucky, a land of running waters, of groves and glades, of prairies, canbrakes and stretches of lofty forest. It was teeming with game. The shaggy maned herds of unwieldy buffalo, the bison as they should be called, had beaten out broad roads through the forest and had furrowed the prairies with trails along which they had traveled for countless generations. The round-horned elk with spreading massive antlers, the lordliest of the deer tribe throughout the world, abounded. And like the buffalo, traveled in bands not only through the woods, but also across the reaches of waving grassland. The deer were extraordinarily numerous, and so were bears, while wolves and panthers were plentiful. Wherever there was a salt spring, the country was fairly thronged with wild beasts of many kinds. For six months, Boone and his companions enjoyed such hunting as had hardly fallen to men of their race since the Germans came out of the Hercynian forest. In December, however, they were attacked by Indians. Boone and a companion were captured, and when they had escaped, they found their camp broken up and the rest of the party scattered and gone home. About this time, they were joined by Squire Boone, the brother of the great hunter, and himself a woodsman of but little less skill, together with another adventurer. The two had traveled through the immense wilderness, partly to explore it, and partly with the hope of finding the original adventurers, which they finally succeeded in doing more by good luck than design. Soon afterward, Boone's companion in his first short captivity was again surprised by the Indians, and this time was slain, the first of the thousands of human beings with whose lifeblood Kentucky was bought. 
the attack was entirely unprovoked. The Indians had wantonly shed the first blood. The land belonged to no one tribe, but was hunted over by all, each feeling jealous of every other intruder. They attacked the whites, not because the whites had wronged them, but because their invariable policy was to kill any strangers on any grounds over which they themselves ever hunted, no matter what man had the best right thereto. The Kentucky hunters were promptly taught that in this no-man's land, teeming with game and lacking even a solitary human habitation, every Indian must be regarded as a foe. The man who had accompanied Squire Boone was terrified by the presence of the Indians and now returned to the settlements. The two brothers remained alone on their hunting grounds throughout the winter, living in a little cabin. About the first of May, Squire set off alone to the settlements to procure horses and ammunition. For three months, Daniel Boone remained absolutely alone in the wilderness, without salt, sugar, or flour, and without the companionship of so much as a horse or a dog. But the solitude-loving hunter, dauntless and self-reliant, enjoyed to the full his wild, lonely life. He passed his days hunting and exploring, wandering hither and thither over the country, while at night he lay off in the canbrakes or thickets, without a fire, so as not to attract the Indians. Of the latter he saw many signs, and they sometimes came to his camp, but his sleepless weariness enabled him to avoid capture. Late in July his brother returned, and met him according to appointment at the old camp. Other hunters also now came into the Kentucky wilderness, and Boone joined a small party of them for a short time. Such a party of hunters is always glad to have anything wherewith to break the irksome monotony of the long evenings passed round the campfire, and a book or a greasy pack of cards was as welcome in a camp of Kentucky riflemen in 1770 as it is to a party of Rocky Mountain hunters in 1888. Boone has recorded in his own quaint phraseology an incident of his life during this summer, which shows how eagerly such a little band of frontiersmen read a book, and how real its characters became to their minds. He was encamped with five other men on Red River, and they had with them for their amusement the history of Samuel Gulliver's travels, wherein he gave an account of his young master, Glumdalek, carrying him on a market day for a show to a town called Lulbagrud. In the party who, amid such strange surroundings, read and listened to Dean Swift's writings, was a young man named Alexander Neely. One night he came into camp with two Indian scalps, taken from a Shawnee's village he had found on a creek running into the river and he announced to the circle of grim wilderness veterans that he had been that day to Lulbagrud and had killed two Brobdignags in their capital. To this day, the creek by which the two luckless Shawnees lost their lives is known as Lulbagrud Creek.
Soon after this encounter, the increasing danger from the Indians drove Boone back to the valley of the Cumberland River, and in the spring of 1771 he returned to his home on the Yadkin. A couple of years before, Boone went to Kentucky, Steiner, or Stoner, and Harrod, two hunters from Pittsburgh who had passed through the Illinois, came down to hunt in the bend of the Cumberland, where Nashville now stands. They found vast numbers of buffalo and killed a great many, especially around the licks where the huge clumsy beasts had fairly destroyed most of the forest, treading down the young trees and bushes till the ground was left bare or covered with a rich growth of clover. The bottoms and the hollows between the hills were thick-set with yew. Sycamore grew in the low ground, and toward the Mississippi were to be found the persimmon and cottonwood. Sometimes the forest was open and composed of huge trees. Elsewhere it was of thicker, smaller growth. Everywhere game abounded, and it was nowhere very wary. Other hunters, of whom we know even the names of only a few, had been through many parts of the wilderness before Boone, and earlier still Frenchmen had built forts and smelting furnaces on the Cumberland, the Tennessee, and the head tributaries of the Kentucky. Boone is interesting as a leader and explorer, but he is still more interesting as a type. The West was neither discovered one nor settled by any single man. No keen-eyed statesman planned the movement, nor was it carried out by any great military leader. It was the work of a whole people, of whom each man was impelled mainly by sheer love of adventure. It was the outcome of the ceaseless strivings of all the dauntless, restless, backwoods folk to win homes for their descendants and to each penetrate deeper than his neighbors into the remote forest hunting grounds where the perilous pleasures of the chase and of war could be best enjoyed. We owe the conquest of the West to all the backwoodsmen, not to any solitary individual among them. Where all alike were strong and daring, there was no chance for any single man to rise to unquestioned preeminence. End of section 10. Recording by Bob Lyon, Winchester, Kansas.